Welcome to Directionally Correct, a Pete Lounge podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Chris Castillo. There, there is no, there is no cheating in this. You know, Google, <laughs> like, like, just you know, you don't have to be like super smart all the time. Um, and you, you can keep it as broad as you want too. I mean, you don't yeah, have sure. to like be on the nose. You can be directionally correct. Exactly. I'll take that. Yeah. All right. I think that that's the cue to start, Scott. Does that work? Uh, yeah. I think we're good. But yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We're good. All right. Cool. Uh, so we're at eight on the hour. Um. Hi, welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole Napper and Scott Hines. Scott, we've got our first guest today. Do you care to tell us about him? I am super excited to have uh, Dr. Castile in the house. Uh, He's going to cover a bunch of topics, but I I think that I'm going to piss you off, Cole, because I think one of the greatest compliments ever paid to anybody was paid to uh, Chris Castile where a, a mutual colleague of ours said, you've never seen anybody be able to tear through crawfish the way Chris can. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to make me frustrated. I, I love crawfish, and I'm glad Chris is good at it. I mean, you live in Homa or something like that, like somewhere way down south. Like, come on, man. I'm sure you're, you're probably really good at it. Uh, tearing through it? Uh, I'm sure uh, I, I'm slow, if anything. It's slow and steady runs the, wins the race, I guess. That's not what I heard. That's not what I heard. <laughs> but well, uh, Chris, well, Chris do, you mind, yeah, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and, and what brings you here today? Sure, sure. So I'm an assistant professor of management in the um, College of Business Administration for a small regional school in South Louisiana. Uh, in Thibodeau, Louisiana, it's Nichols State University. And here I study, as it's relevant for this topic, many things related to open science. So um, we'll talk a bit about what open science is, but it's a movement that started um, in many respects around 2010s, early 2010s, it really started to take off and then really, really took off around 2015 with the publication of Brian Nosek's mini lab study, where uh, there was an effort to replicate some well-known experiments in psychology, and um, it led to some really interesting findings, namely that a lot of psychology research doesn't quite replicate, or at least that's what the findings from that study suggested. Well, maybe, maybe um, we take a step back, Chris. Like, why why would they even do that kind of study? Like, for for like the non-scientist, non-academic person, the audience out there, what, like, what are we even talking about here? And, sure, and, sure. And, you know, like what, what's what's the there there? Sure. So ultimately, we most of people believe that science is self-correcting. Someone does an experiment, they test a claim, they report the evidence for that claim in the scientific journals, and we accept it as fact and we guard this fact. Um, unless we have good reason for overturning it, there's better evidence that comes upon um, uh, the literature at a point in time. Uh, this is what we were all taught in grade school, whenever we were learning what the scientific method is. Um, and what uh, the reality is of scientific uh, publishing is that there's a lot of pressure that's placed on academics like myself um, to produce scholarly articles. And sometimes that means coming up with a finding that's really flashy and interesting, such as if you were to put your hands on your hips and do what's called a power pose, that's going to make you feel more powerful and this is going to help you perform better in your job, which is something that was published in a top tier psychology journal, psychological science, I think around 2010, 2011. Um, And so we have lots of these really interesting eye-catching findings that can get out in the literature. And if they're not properly vetted, then it creates a misleading picture about what does and does not work 
not just in psychology, but also for our purposes in organizational life. So as far as like a little brief history goes, it was around 2010, 2011, there was a paper published in the journal uh, Personality and Social Psychology. That was top tier social psychology outlets. And it was published by Daryl Bim. He was, um, I think he may still be a professor at Cornell, but anyway, the topic of the paper was on parapsychology. So uh, if you can feel What's or see the future. What's parapsychology, Chris? Yeah. yeah, so that's like if you can feel or see the future, uh, predict what's coming, you can anticipate it and change your behavior to take advantage of it. Um, what BIM did is he took several classic phenomena. For instance, one that's relevant for us is if you are to be trained in the present, that makes you better in the future. You should perform better on a test. Well, what if he time reversed that and he trained you in the future? Would you perform better in the present? That was one of the conditions in his study, yes. Um, he had nine experiments. Um, they had between them like 100 or so participants um, per, per experiment. And, and I think it was like seven or eight of those experiments, he found positive evidence confirming that psychic phenomena exist. So this got published in a top tier psychology journal. And as you can imagine, as you can imagine, the psychology community didn't react well to this. We're by disposition, we're pretty skeptical of psychic phenomena. Um, but this finding caught a lot of attention. In fact, Daryl Bim, he appeared on the uh, Colbert Report back when Stephen Colbert was doing his thing. Um, and as you can imagine, there was some interest in replicating whether or not those findings help. And interestingly enough, those replications, of course, they failed. Many of them failed. Um, but whenever those failed replications were brought to JPSP, the editorial board said, we don't publish replications. So right. this raised deeper concerns about the ecosystem in which science gets conducted, and ultimately it led to Brian Nosick and a variety of cognitive well, social a, psychologists. What's a replication, Chris? Sorry, I, I think it's important that people know, again, that are not sure. familiar with this. What What's a replication, sure. and why wouldn't a journal choose to publish it? Sure. So uh, there are many ways to define a replication, but in principle, it's taking the same methods, same procedures that were conducted in one context by one research team and reproducing those methods in another context using similar methodologies. Maybe you use a larger sample, maybe you use the same population, um, maybe you use better measures. There are many ways to define replication, but ultimately it's taking the same idea and you're testing it in a different setting. Now, um, journals may not like to publish replications because it's not often clear whether or not the replications are constructive. Um, maybe you are doing the exact same method in one context uh, that was that worked well in one organizational setting or in one laboratory setting. You're testing in another setting, okay? But maybe you're using the same sample size that was used previously, and that study originally was underpowered. So if you don't find something, it could be due to low power, could be due to a variety of reasons that um, may not necessarily be informative to the literature. And so journals, they generally discourage publishing replications because it's not clear what's new, what's different, what's better. Um, and as that, a that consequence, makes, that makes total sense. Works. That makes total sense. Like journals are in the business of making money and the business of like selling their results. How, how should it work? How, like, what, what's the current system and how should it work? Well, and Scott, can I sure. make a comment there real quick? Isn't it, isn't it kind of weird? that the journals that are responsible for um, engaging in the scientific enterprise are kind of the ones that are holding up a key element of science, which is replication. 
Like, isn't that isn't that sort of weird in general? I, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. It's it's like their business model to uh, produce results that people want to read, and they benefit from this current system. Uh, I know that Chris has a perspective on this. Love to hear what he has to say. Yeah, there was an interesting documentary on this topic about uh, the business of publishing. I forget the name of it, um, uh, but it, it is publicly available. Paywalled, I think that's the name of it, uh, that talks yes. about the business of scholarship, where basically if you want to find out, okay, what's the latest evidence on some new people analytics practice? Well, you're going to eventually be brought to a journal, and most likely that journal will be paywalled. And so if you're someone who wants access to the, the story that is that article, you have to pay for that. Now, institutions, academic institutions, they buy these in bulk, um, but they can get pretty expensive, as you can imagine, um, which is that is a rabbit hole to go down there. <laughs> we could chase that if you want. There's um, but... there's nothing more frustrating <laughs> than like seeing this really cool journal article and you're like, this will answer all of my questions, all of my dreams, all my hopes, and then go in there and just like being able to read the abstract and like, yeah, you better hope it has a good else. abstract. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Or or even worse, so you get these like non-academic journals. They'll give you like uh, just a little teaser. They'll give you like uh, two paragraphs. You're like, oh yeah, this is this is what I need. Mm. It's like, no, it just kind of fades off into pay me seven dollars or whatever it is. Which is one of the reasons why the open science movement has gained so much popularity amongst I not just academics, but I also think practitioners too. So well, what, what's the open are... science movement, Chris? Sorry, I think because what, yeah, what, sure. what I want to actually, I don't know the answer to this, and I would love to you for you to explain it because there mm -hmm. was like, and, and I, I do want to go back to that Nozick article as well, but there was like the reproducibility crisis and then the open science, let's call it revolution that's going on. I, I saw those two as sort of like synonyms, but are they different things? And like, what are they? So I want to make sure I'm grasping the question. So is the open science movement, is it separate from what else? The reproducibility crisis and, and like uh -oh. Nozick's work that lit and then going back to BIM's parapsychology article and all of that, like what, like where are they the same? Where are they different? Are they the same thing? Uh, again, I think I'm a little out removed from this uh, world. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are definitely related. Um, Earlier, I gave you the definition of or a view of what replication is, where we're just trying to take someone's hypothesis and we're testing in a different context. Uh, that is similar to yet distinct from reproducibility. So reproducibility would be suppose someone has tested an interaction effect. A very popular one in our area of the uh, of of work has to do with that with uh, performance being a function of ability and motivation. People can do their work, and if they're motivated to do it, those two things combine to explain why people perform at a higher level. Mm -hmm. so um, it's like can do versus will do. Yeah. And more importantly, what we were most of us were taught is that it's the combination of the two. Um, but a multiplicative combination is a bit hair-splitting here. But what I'm trying to get at is that there's an interaction between the two. There's, there's direct effects of ability and motivation, and there's also some interactive component. If you are capable, but you can't, but you have no motivation, then your performance is going to be uh, low, for instance. Well, suppose I were to study this very simple idea. And I want to gather data on ability factors or motivation factors, and I want to see if they're correlated to performance. Well, I'm going to eventually publish or put into my paper some descriptive statistics table. It's going to describe how strongly associated these things are with performance. Now, 
our key idea here is that there's something to do with the combination, the interaction of these two things. What you will find in most articles that examine interaction effects is that the term that is the interaction term, that's going to be missing from the table. Why is this problematic? Because if I'm doing a regression analysis, I want to be able to take the data from that correlation matrix and use that to build the model to reproduce those findings. I want to be able to reproduce the effect right. that there is an interaction of ability and motivation on performance. But if I don't have that statistic in the paper, which by the way, most studies that examine interaction effects don't have this in their paper, I cannot reproduce the finding. This is a problem because someone's making a claim in their paper that I cannot independently reproduce using their own data. Do you see how that's different from replication? Well, can I can I make a funny aside here, Chris? Sure, I, sure. I there's a. I remember writing papers. This you know going way back, and one of the things that I just didn't even know how to properly create the table <laughs> to 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 like put an interaction effect. So I leave it out and be like, ah, nobody's gonna notice that isn't there, because uh, it's just like formatting can be a beast sometimes. Oh yeah. I agree with that 100%. I studied interaction effects. About two of my earlier papers involved an interaction effect, and I did the exact same thing. I didn't realize that I needed to include this term. I learned it later on. Um, and it's, you know, this points to some of the blind spots that can exist in training whenever we're going through school. Uh, sometimes we're just doing things because that's what everyone else does. Uh, like, I'll just put the correlation matrix in there because that's what everyone else does, forgetting that there is information there that tells us something about an effect, and we need to make sure that all of the information is in there. So what I do as a reviewer for um, scholarly journals, I get invited to review a lot of mediated moderation and variations of all that. Um, I, I uh, point out these issues and call for authors to be more transparent in the effects that they're reporting so that their claims can be independently reproduced by someone else. That's well, an important it, part. Wasn't there a, a famous uh, author, probably like 2000, 13, 2014, they got caught doing this, uh, essentially having effect sizes that were impossible based on their correlation table. Someone essentially looked at both and said, like, ah, this doesn't add up. Yeah, that does happen. Um, the author that you may be referring to, Brian Wanzik, uh, he it was um, not a correlation, but he was studying, um, I think it was like the size of plates and the amount of food that people eat. That was that was a very catchy thing mm. a few years ago. Um, like if you had bigger plates and people didn't notice how big the plates were, they eat more food, smaller plates, they didn't know how small the plates were, they eat, more, uh, they eat less food. Um, but if you I look just, at the descriptive statistics for one of his studies, the children, there was children in his study, they would have had to have eaten like horse-sized servings of carrots. <laughs> um, and it was just clear that it was, it was made up or there was a gross error. And eventually the paper was retracted and a lot of his work was retracted. I think he had to resign um, from like, academia. Uh, on the other end, like uh, you, you'll go around PSYOP or wherever, uh, just look through journal articles, and you'll see these like uh, hierarchical, mediated, mo uh, moderated models. Right. right. And right. you're like, well, shit, that's pretty incredible. Like, did you hypothesize this before the fact, or did you just happen upon this result? Because this is pretty incredible if you derive this in your brain beforehand. Yeah, it would be. Um, it would be brilliant if that occurred more frequently where folks hypothesized the desired effects in advance and then everything came out that cleanly. Well, well, Chris, um, isn't there a name for that? Work that way. Yeah, I mean, isn't there a name for that? Like, uh, I mean, hypothesizing I, one, one after the, thing, the results are known. 
Yeah. Well, it, but I mean, I feel like there was like a whole list of things, like rules that, that you know that you're doing something that's likely not to reproduce. Like p hacking was one. Uh, hypothesizing after. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind talking about those at all? Sure, sure. So questionable research practices. Um, that notice that they're not called unethical. They're not called illegal. Like a lot of these practices can be on the gray areas of researchers' decision-making process. So all that can refer to is you have all of your data in front of you. And now what you want to do is you want to decide to exclude some people because they're outliers. Um, you want to change your modeling decisions because the original model you had in mind doesn't fit really well to your data. Something doesn't really work well there. Um, it's okay to report these transparently, talk about the decisions that were made that ultimately led up to your conclusion. And mm -hmm. then even better to do a robustness check where, okay, well, let's let's go back and let's take away all these decisions. What happens? And if the, the model doesn't hold or your findings don't hold, that needs to be reported transparently. The problem is that this often doesn't get reported transparently because there are a lot of decisions that occur going from data collection to reporting that if you were to give to a reader, poof, that would be a huge technical report. No one's going to want to read yeah. that. Yeah, I don't think that people realize how many trade-offs go into a simple study, even like you know, the, the sample this goes into it, et cetera. And like, right, forget, right. forget, forget even like a meta-analysis, like what, what's included and like how you uh, operationalize this, et cetera. So like if we had a system where uh, people were to pre-register their hypotheses beforehand, right? how would that even work? How would that even work? Yeah, so we do have systems like that. And um, there are several that are publicly available. The Open Science Framework is one, osf.io. Um, Hypothesis is another one, I think. Uh, Predict.is is another. There are a variety of these repositories available where you can uh, effectively be like, you know, the college pool player who's calling their shot before they actually <laughs> take it. So you, you go to these repositories, you post your hypothesis, and that's really an important thing to do. It's just like, what is the, the key idea that you want to test? What are your hypotheses or hypotheses? Those, if they're stated beforehand, you call the shot and you sync it, that's important. We need to know that. Um, what's un unfortunate is that very often that's not the case. Uh, we don't know how often um, it mm. is the case. There are dis disagreements about the base rate of it. Um, ultimately, what this makes for is a lot of exploratory work being published as if it's confirmatory, as if it's testing a theory, when really someone could have just happened to have come across um, some trend in the data that's not really there. Chris, yeah. do you mind if I dig into this for just a second? Because I think what you're saying, kind of what I would put in my own layman's terms, is if science says, or, or a theory in science says, hey, when one thing happens, another thing should happen. Then when you test that out with data, that thing, that second thing should happen if the first thing was theorized to happen. And what we're saying is, well, you know, sometimes that doesn't occur. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that's a problem. And that, that invalidates things like scientific theories. And that's like kind of the whole premise behind science itself. And so when people aren't calling their shots, like the college pool player, player, when they're not calling their shots, you know, that's a problem because that may be making the whole reverse order from the parapsychology earlier. We're creating the theory after the data comes in rather than waiting, creating the theory and then collecting the data that shows whether the theory is true or not. Is that in, in a nutshell? 
That is a big part of it. There has been a huge concern within the scientific community about folks hypothesizing after their results are known or harking, and um, that this then gets fed into theory that's not needed because there's no pattern there for theory to act upon. It is a big concern. Uh, you could have the exact opposite concern, though, where we're not attentive enough to the data that we're getting um, fed to us. Uh, I see this as being really important in your line of work, um, where you're on, you're in people analytics, and so you have data in organizational settings that academics, I mean, don't have access to. So we may be making theories, positing predictions, but actually having no idea as to whether or not they work. In fact, there's a statistic for you. Um, Academy Management Review, the theory journal in the uh, management sciences, 99% of those theories don't get tested um, for a variety of reasons, perhaps. But Is that an exaggeration be... or is that a real No. <laughs> uh, if it's an exaggeration, it's off by maybe, a, a, you know, the, the tenth. Uh, it, uh, uh, the one's place, sorry. So maybe not 99%, but maybe over 90%. It's it's directionally correct is what you're saying, right? Yeah, <laughs> it is directionally correct, yeah. <laughs> so, so, um, is, is so this because like there's not to manpower have... or, or is this because there's like not uh, the data available? Um, I I love the, the idea that there's not enough manpower on this. In fact, there's an idea I am trying to get out there within our community, um, and it builds off of an innovation within the open science movement to address many of the problems we've discussed here, such as low power, people having their own pet hypotheses and playing with them, not getting their hypotheses independently reproduced by other labs. And that's called the mini lab collaboration, the multi-site collaboration. Mm -hmm. So earlier, Cole, you wanted to get back to the NOSIC paper. Um, the NOSIC paper is an example of this, where you have psychologists coming together, devoting some of their limited resources to taking hypotheses and subjecting them to independent replication across a variety of settings, experimental settings. Um, that paper, which had uh, 100 different effects in psychology, uh, the authors tried to replicate those findings, and they found, I think it was 39% of the uh, or 39 of the studies were successful in the sense that they were directly correct. Virtually all of the effects, though, were smaller than what was in the published literature, which is a problem as well, especially for practice. Um, uh, well, look, can I say it differently again? I, I think it's yeah, sure. really important that we kind of kind of make the like basically it's saying you, you, you could put it differently, like 40 percent of the because these were major findings. These weren't like small, you know, a sideshow right. type. These were like some of the biggest studies that are referenced in highly psychology. Cited. Yeah, they're very right. highly cited thing. So like 60% of them failed to replicate or replicated at a lower clip. Is that a, a fair way of saying? So like the, the, yeah. Biggest, yeah, the biggest things in the social sciences that you know most people would know about if they're in the working world failed to replicate and, and and like i don't think a lot of people even know this like this like i know this happened over a decade ago but this is still a bombshell in my mind it so it can seem that way the reason why i say it can seem that way is if these studies were representative of the literature and these are highly cited, highly cited studies and very often highly cited studies um, they're highly cited because they make mistakes. There are mistakes in the original finding that authors try to correct, and so they're constantly citing back to those papers just in other journals because replications are hard to publish in top-tier journals. Um, so the, if the findings that were uh, 
were representative of the literature, then yeah, I think we could say that that 40% is pretty representative. But um, for what it's worth, there have been other replication attempts, and they're still directionally in that uh, area of a lot of psychology research is uh, not replicating, at least not as much as we'd like. Uh, some areas are better than others. For instance, cognitive is more replicable than social. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. pretty robust still, even though social has certainly changed, um, has certainly improved. Social psychology has, has improved a lot over the past decade, from what I understand. Um, the well, what, base what about rates of replication are higher in cognitive. That's a where, 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 does, where, where does IO psychology stand in this? Because I, I would like to think that we pride ourselves in, and you know, Scott and I are both IO psychs that went into the working world, and so we, I would right. say we tried to put our ideas into practice, and and I would say buttress them up against reality and see how good we really are, you know, because I think it can be quite a humbling experience at times. But what what I would say is like, where is IO in this, and does it does it have a problem, and is IO open science the solution? Um, have there been any major failed replications that we should all be aware of if we are practitioners? You know, what, right. tell, tell us more here, Chris. Sure. So I don't know what the base rate of of IO psych um, theory or hypotheses being successfully uh, or the effects associated with these theories and hypotheses being successfully reproduced. Um, independently or through replication. We haven't had any large-scale effort to sample effects from our literature and attempt to replicate those independently. That's actually something I am hoping to spur more of. Not earlier I was talking about the multi-site collaboration. I'm hatching an idea, I'm calling it mini-orgs, which the idea is to get organizations on board with giving some of their data to test well-known effects in the field. Um, well, if and Chris, to see whether if, or not they people... hold. Like if any of our listeners have interest in partnering with you on that, how would they learn about it? How would they reach out to you? You know, like, like, let's make sure. this thing happen. You know, it, it starts with one person and then, you know, a team and then a community and, and then, you know, things change. So well, how can we make that happen? Um, well, right now, uh, it would just be reaching out to me directly. So um, my email address is Christopher.Castile at nichols.edu. If you just Google me, you'll you'll see my email address pop up. Um, we'll put in the uh, show I, notes as well. Cool. Um, I um, So uh, our, our discussion here is timely because there is a um, an article out for commentary in the journal Industrial Organizational Psychology Perspectives on Science and Practice. Um, uh, Rich, uh, Rick Gutso and uh, Ben Schneider, and I forget the third author, um, talk about in the opening article, the focal article, the merits of open science and its drawbacks for the field. Many of the things they say I agree with. Uh, we wouldn't, for instance, want IO psychology to um, look exactly like an experimental discipline where, uh, where we are able to um, plan everything in advance like you would in an experiment and a control for so many sources of variation, although we would love to do some of that in practice, uh, the real world is messier, and that well, well, Chris, is important can I, can, I, can I pick on this? Yeah, because it is sure. in the real world, and in the real right. world, you, I, would, I, I hesitate to use the word never, but you never mm -hmm. get experimental conditions in the real world. You, know, you may have like quasi-experimental, right. you may have right. natural experiments that end up occurring, but true experiments in like a lab setting I, again, I, I hesitate to use that word never, but I don't think they ever happen. No. I agree. Yeah, I agree. It, it, there's a bias against experiments and practice. Does that mean that the theories that we 
uh, tests and or, or the alternative was we don't want to treat our employees like lab rats. I mean, that would be <laughs> right. Example, right, right. <laughs> Right, right. It's dehumanizing. So there's, there's an, does that mean that the data that organizations get access to is not valuable? Absolutely not. It should serve as a check on whether or not our theories are useful for making predictions in practice. Um, so there's a role to be played there. Um, now, I mentioned the uh, focal piece is worth reading. It's a good piece. Um, uh, I have a team right now. We're looking at introducing the idea of creating a consortium where organizations can share some of their data. We put out calls for uh, replicating well-known uh, phenomena within IL psychology, and there will be some rules at play as to who contributes and how they contribute. But in principle, what we want the uh, vehicle of many orgs to do is to constructively replicate prior literature. So if we have good reason to believe that, say, for instance, conscientiousness, which, you know, are you diligent, are you hardworking, do you follow rules? This is related to performance is one of the most well-established findings in IO psychology. Um, some scholars suggested it could be too much of a good thing. And that's a really hard phenomenon to get at. Totally. But could we test that by getting more organizations involved, sharing their data, and then publishing the findings in a way that allows us to get around such things as publication bias and selection bias, things that can con contaminate the literature. I think you're also hitting on like one of the implications of pre-registering your uh, hypotheses before they're actually conducted. That if, right. if there was a, like a list of like all these sort of potential studies that are out there, uh, people could go out, kind of see what's coming up next, find potential collaborators because uh, I think his name is Brian Uzi. He, he, he developed this, uh, I think it's called a 30 foot phenomenon where most okay. studies are conducted about the 30 feet around a, an academic's office. Makes sense, like you mm -hmm. collaborate with those folks. But yep. if you have different cross institutions collaborate on a single yep. paper, the findings are just much more robust. The research is uh, uh, much more uh, grasping and uh, far reaching. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. I agree. I agree. I think we need more collaboration in our field. I think we need more collaboration across academic and practitioner lines. Um, I think that makes for much more robust findings um, and stronger contributions to our science. Um, Cole, there was something that you mentioned earlier that triggered a thought, which is, well, what is it that we know about what does and does not work in our field? Um, I'll give you an example about how Social psych has informed what IO psych is interested in, and that's uh, stereotype threat. So stereotype threat, this idea that if you have people who are taking tests in high stakes settings and you um, remind them of a stereotype, say a racial stereotype, say you tell people who are minorities that they're not, minorities typically score poorly on these tests, you tell the, to them, or even if you subtly cue to the test takers that this is something that, that is a phenomenon, then they score poorer on these uh, tests. There was a meta-analysis by Paul Sackett, I believe, I could be mistaken there, published in the Journal of Applied Psychology, showing that, well, in practice, this is not a phenomenon that generally um, seems replicable or of concern to practitioners. If the effect is there, it's probably smaller than we think it is. Um, so that's an example where there are claims in social psych that we then have to manage as the applied wing of psychology, and we find that there's really nothing there. Um, and then there are ways in which we correct ourselves. So I'll give you an, another example of that. Anyone who's gone through an IELTS program is familiar with Hunter and Schmidt's meta-analysis on the uh, best selection procedures. Um, and therein he talks about the value of cognitive ability. Well, there are some decisions that Frank made. Uh, Frank passed away. 
recently. Um, but there were some decisions that he made in conducting his meta-analysis that involve, uh, I'll just briefly say it's range restriction. And when you apply a stronger decision rule, I think, again, Paul Sackett did some work updating uh, Frank's work, you find that the claims are more modest, namely that the uh, selection procedures we think are effective are not as effective as we used to think they are. That's an example of correction that's going on in our field, and I think that's a good thing when you highlight more of that rather than focus when on is that, what's breaking. Is that a re re reproducibility or is that something else? Again, I just want to make sure I'm using the right terms. Yeah, I would say that that's reproducibility. So Paul was able to reproduce Frank's work and then apply different corrections to it within a meta-analytic context. And that was, and he was able to come up with uh, and did he find that the validity. Did he find that, did the estimates shrink or did they go away completely? They shrank. Okay. They shrank. So it's, it's not like they nullified the finding, but it, they did shrink. Right, okay. they shrank. How big of a deal is it that like so much of our IO data is tied up in organizations? You know, we collect it, but never going to share this information out. You know, well, uh, let me build on this too, Scott, because I, Chris was saying something earlier. And I wanted to ask him this so bad. I'm like, I wanted him to wade into this. He probably doesn't want to. <laughs> you know, we we referenced a few times in this conversation. You know, academics and organizations partnering together and the lack thereof of real data in the top tier journals. Like, right. what's the cause of that? Why is that happening, Chris? You know, why why isn't there more there? And you know, you know, Scott was saying, you know, he's not sharing his data. I'm not sharing my data. Well, how, how do you guys find stuff out if that's not happening? I think it does happen. Um, and there, what I and this is anecdotal. I I don't know why it doesn't happen more frequently. I can only speculate that there that the systems don't necessarily conspire in the way that we would like them to to make more of this happen. Um, but for those who are able to successfully bridge the divide, you have someone usually in academia who's partnering with like their colleagues in their network, folks they went to grad school with, um, to take a finding and uh, put it into the context of the academic literature so we can show academics that this is valuable. And uh, that can be tough, mainly because whenever you're trying to make a contribution to the literature, you really have to make a compelling case that the data that are from an organizational setting are adding something to the literature. It's constructive for the literature. It's overcoming problems for the literature. Um, and that process of taking some claim and putting it into academics' heads by writing it all out, that takes a lot of time, a lot right. of time. Just to give you a ballpark estimate, if you're going to try and get a paper published in a top-tier journal, um, expect to rewrite the introduction 10 times. So imagine you know how long it took you to go through your dissertation. Now add 10 times to that introduction. That's how long it takes you to write to make sure that people in academia me, appreciate me, the value of what you're doing. Yeah, let me put it into different words. The incentives are misaligned because there's virtually no incentive for Scott and I to publish or to even partner with someone to publish based on what you just said, right? No, yeah, it's fair. a world of... It's a world of pain. It's uh, really going to be problematic from a legal standpoint, too. Yeah, say more it about definitely presents with a lot of challenges. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to say <laughs> more about that. Uh, but, like, uh, yes, yes, the, the partnership becomes really problematic. But, like, on the other side, how problematic is it that a lot of the I.O. principles are built without organization data or they're collected from undergrads, you know, participating in surveys, this sort of thing? So 
for me, I think of this from a triangulation perspective. So uh, we may find that something works in organizational life, but uh, can we replicate parts of it in the lab? I'm sure that there's going to be something there. People are people. And yeah, the college sophomore is definitely not an ideal uh, population to consistently go back to. Uh, but if there is some phenomena of interest to psychology, we should be able to reproduce it in the lab in some way. It may not be the most high fidelity. It may not be the most ecologically valid. These are concerns with the lab setting. Um, but what they do offer is experimental control, saying that one thing causes another. And that's really important for building a science. And that's going to be, as you said uh, earlier, Cole, it's going to be really hard to do that in practice unless you can conduct an experiment. Um, so well, Chris, what we do you, should see do is you do any consulting with real organizations like outside of the university world at all? A little bit here and there, um, but it's definitely not my primary area of work as an academic. Because I, I've got this really um, interesting question, and I, I haven't seen anybody address this since the whole reproducibility and open science uh, topic has come into you know the the, the zeitgeist of the times. So mm -hmm. what? What do companies do? Like, how would you consult with a company if they've been using a procedure for, you know, years or decades and then, <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, lo and behold, it doesn't reproduce or even maybe there's even the opposite effect that was intended. Yeah. How, how would right. you consult with that organization um, to deal with that? Because, you know, the, there's a lot of complexity there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to hear your perspectives on this because I don't have a silver bullet to that problem. And you definitely don't want to be the person who's, you know, Mr. Evidence-based person going around calling into question everything the organization is doing. You're just going to annoy everyone. No one's going to take you seriously. And that will backfire. You don't want that. Um, so I don't know exactly how you would go about doing that. Um, I do know that if you're that person who is just saying that, okay, this doesn't replicate, this isn't, this isn't reproduce. Well, if you go around waving that as your flag, Eventually, people will start turning you, turning off to you. Um, so you want to be careful about just calling attention to the sky is falling. Um, I, I think in practice, that's probably going to backfire in the long run, even though it's catchy in the short run. Well, Scott, um, Scott how do you deal with it? Uh, well, you, you remind me of, of a funny tweet I saw recently where this guy is like looking at a dashboard and he's like, well, the, the, the data looks off, right? That's step one. Step mm -hmm. two is like, go check right. it. Like, yeah, the data is definitely wrong. Step three, oh mm -hmm. no, uh, this dashboard is going to senior leaders. Step four, do I tell anybody? But I mean, like, luckily, luckily these sort of issues don't come up very often. Yeah. Well, you know, my my personal way of viewing this is really two things, one of which I think is is pretty typical, and the other, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this, Chris, because I've been kind of throwing this idea out there, but I don't know if it's a if it's a good idea per se. Uh, mm -hmm. One is, you know, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but my team has a set of operating principles, and mm -hmm. one of the kind of meta principles is do what works and only that. And therefore, you can't do what works and only that if you don't know what's working. Right. If you don't have data to prove it, and again, I don't care if it if it's coming from the academic literature and the reproducibility crisis, or just you know what's going on locally at our organization. But if if the data doesn't pan out, we need to stop it and we need to replace it with something else if that's appropriate. So that's that's one way of dealing with it. The other is, and this is where I feel like I'm I'm, I'm treading on sacred cows, which is I always heard in in like graduate school and even earlier in my career that like local validation of a result is like the lowest form of of scientific inquiry 
And I've, right. I've kind of taken this and flipped it on its head here for a second because with the reproducibility crisis, I'm starting to think that local validation might be the highest form of science, at least for your or own organization. And so let me kind of build the case out here for a second, and then I want you to comment sure. on it, Chris, is if you think about your organization and the employees that work there as the capital P population, right? Meaning there's nobody else in the world. This is just our organization. We're like on our own earth, you know, um, then local validation is just validation. It is, it is the scientific enterprise for our organization. And so if we have a finding for our organization, it doesn't matter if it replicates elsewhere as long as it replicates for us, right? And so I've started to see local validation as the highest form of scientific inquiry, not the opposite. I don't know, what, what's your perspective on that? Sure, um, so uh, a, a few things. One is I agree with you that whenever we were going through grad school, we were definitely taught that local validation is a very weak form of evidence. And a lot of that goes back to meta-analysis with Frank Schmidt basically calling into question that a lot of the variation that we see in effects across organizational settings or job settings can be chalked up to sampling error. And that's, that's the key thing that I would encourage you to keep in mind. Like if you have a lot of data in your local setting, which if you're in a large organization, that's probably going to be a little Let me push on this because this is you're mm -hmm. actually hitting at the key of the issue, which is, mm -hmm. is sampling error. Well, if I'm dealing with a capital P population, I'm not taking a sample. If I have 100% of the data on 100% of like the people on Earth, that's not a sample anymore. That's the population. And therefore, there is no estimation or uh, of, of the error of the sample because there is no sample. I have 100%. So no tell me more stats. about that. Oh, uh, let me give you, let, let, let's play a different role. I want you to, to play the role of me then, and I'll, I'll play the role of an organization. Um, I have a test called emotional intelligence that is seven times more potent at predicting job performance than general cognitive ability. Um, and I have no problem making That's this just claim. Wrong it, at works face at, value. It, it works continue. in my organization. <laughs> uh, my technical documents inside of the organization support its use. Seven times more potent as a predictor of cognitivity. Uh, clearly, anyone who tells me this is wrong. Well, Chris, I feel like you're, 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 I feel triggered, first of all, um, that I'm being put into this position. Oh, you are being set up, my friend. You are being set up. <laughs> well, here's the thing is, it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat you charitably, Chris. I'm going to say that you properly operationally define emotional intelligence, that you have a valid measure of it, that you have a valid measure of the, the other criteria that you're measuring, and that you have, you know, that it is predicting job performance and that job performance is actually real. So I'm going to, I'm going to assume that is true so I can untrigger myself a little bit. And I'm just going to say, <laughs> so then what I would want to know is your methods, right? Yeah, I would absolutely. really, and once I know your methods, maybe it is true i'm actually willing yeah. to to settle for that at your organization if all of the th all of the above is true it's just chances are when that person who's sitting in your seat saying that is saying it all those things aren't true <laughs> but the thing is and this is where i go back to the kind of scott and i's perspective is if i'm saying it or scott saying it all of the above is likely true right and i wouldn't be using such a you know, again, triggering type example of, of, of the, because what, what I would be saying is the local validation would be proving something that is probably real, right? And again, it may yeah. only be real for us. 
Yeah, and that raises an in, a very interesting point. If it's an organization-specific phenomenon, it's only linked to you. Um, it raises question as to what is it about the organization? What is it about its culture? What is it else that's measurable that allows such a finding to be produced so strongly and robustly at one specific organization? And if that's only going to occur in that organization, is it representative of a general phenomenon? Is it something that we should incorporate into our theory, into our science? Or do we treat it as a one-off? It, well, it we, may work for you, and we don't deny that. Well, we also know that certain personality characteristics also uh, work better in certain situations. Uh, right. Agreeableness, uh, high for mm -hmm. nurses, low for executives, right. this sort right. of thing. Right. But the thing that I like about that example, Scott, is that that's an example of a general set of principles that can be tested across a variety of circumstances. Mm -hmm. The point that I was getting at has to do with if you're saying something's organization specific, then what is it that's so unique about that organization that allows it to be reproduced only under those particular circumstances? It would be, for instance, if I'm running a lab and I, I have a phenomenon I can generate in my lab, but no one else can generate it. So what I, is it that's so unique about my lab? That oh, I, I, think a, I think the aspect of culture is like really important here too, right? Because like every organization I've worked in, they essentially say like, "Guess what? We're different from everybody else." Yeah, like, yeah. Probably not. Everyone's special. We're all humans. We're all humans. Right. You know, let me right, let me push right. back on that a little bit because I I think that there's there's definitely wisdom in what you're saying in the sense that yeah, most things about most companies are probably pretty similar to every other company, right? But there, there's a, there is a, it's not an alternative view per se, but I think there's an and view, which is, mm -hmm. however, there are probably some small, unique things about your organization. And if Absolutely. you can amplify those and really, truly understand those better than your competition, you right. probably stand to differentially benefit as an organization in the marketplace because you do understand those small and maybe nuanced differences. And so I actually mm -hmm. really focus a lot of my research internally on those particular things because mm -hmm. the differences, not in lieu of the differences. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. In other words, like there's a unique history, there's a unique culture that you want to build on. Yeah, there's going to be you know, a lot of general principles, but still there's particular to your organization you really want to appreciate, especially if you're leading a team using its own data, using the organization's own data to make yeah. that organization better. I totally get that. Yeah, just to prove the point here for a second, it's like imagine, you know, and I work at a startup and, you know, maybe your startup is more thrifty than most right. other startups. That's probably something you can cash in on as a company from an organizational culture standpoint. But I, but I think the point's proven. What I do want to say is, Chris, this has been super enlightening. You know, I, I feel like I, I've learned a ton. I know more about the reproducibility crisis. I know more about, you know, what organizations should do about it. And I think our audience does too. I don't know, any kind of closing remarks from you or Scott, anything you'd like to add? Super appreciate you uh, coming on here, Chris. I learned all about uh, the replication crisis, and uh, I was not aware of this OS.io registry. OSF.io, Open Science oh, I, Framework. I'll cut all this out. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's if fine. You're... Well, we'll put this in the show notes too, because I think it's really yeah. important that our audience has has access to these materials as well. Um, but Chris, again, any any closing thoughts? 
Sure. So if you're interested in keeping the conversation going and say you're an industrial organizational psychologist, consider joining PSYOPs committee, um, the Committee for Open Science and Practice. I've been serving on it for two years. It's a group of junior and senior faculty, uh, generally speaking faculty, but there are some practitioners who are uh, doing what they can to help make our science stronger and better. Um, you can also take a look at the column that uh, we you can contribute to it if you want. This is tips quarterly column uh, called Opening Up, which is devoted to all things open science as it relates to the field. You can submit something to me. You can reach out to me if you're curious to uh, learn more about how you can get involved in open science within our field. There are many leaders in our field who want our science to be stronger and better. I think we're all unified in that. Um, and the open science movement has presented all sciences with challenges for making our science stronger and better. So if you want to play a role in this effort, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and uh, we can keep the conversation going. Well, Dr. Thanks Chris Castile, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're listening to uh, Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today.